Get 0% interest for 48 months on any replacement project right now at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Our experts complete the installation with no hassle or mess, leaving only perfect results. Schedule your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at The Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the WTMJ Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. I guess the criminals have just not gotten the message. Here's the headline from Fox Fox Knicks. Fox 6. Seven Milwaukee weekend shootings, 14 hurt, one killed in 36 hours. You you could describe the city of Milwaukee as the wild, wild west, but as I've said before, that would be an insult to the wild, wild west. Here is the deal. At least, at least seven Milwaukee weekend shootings left 14 people hurt and one dead in about 36 hours Friday morning, October 21st through Sunday morning, October 23rd, right? This doesn't include whatever might have happened yesterday afternoon. Friday, 25th and Scott, a domestic shooting left a 19-year-old woman hurt Friday morning around 1 a.m. near 25th and Scott. The victim showed up at the hospital for treatment. 20-year-old man was arrested. Saturday, on Saturday, Milwaukee police responded to at least five shootings. Around 1 a.m., a man, 39, was shot near 32nd and Center, taken to the hospital for treatment of his injuries. Uh, This second incident um, I, actually, it, it motivated me to send out a tweet uh, yesterday or Saturday morning. If you follow me, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. But, but here's the deal. Six people, including a 17-year-old boy, were hurt in a shooting around 1.20 a.m. Saturday. So it would be Friday night, Saturday morning, near Fond du Lac and Hoyt. Six people. Police said roughly 100 shell casings were found at the scene. And, you know, my note was on Twitter— a hundred bullet casings? I mean, a hundred bullet casings. This isn't just, hey, you had a quick shooting incident. This is you have a flat-out, you know, Elliot Ness, untouchables, gun battle going on on the streets. A hundred bullet cases. I mean, my note was, forget about distributing free clubs to deter car theft. I think maybe the city of Milwaukee should be talking about issuing free Kevlar vests to help protect citizens caught in the middle of these nightly gun battles. A hundred bullet casings. So it's not just a shooting. It's, I mean, this is... Think about the scene where Sonny Corleone is murdered on the causeway in The Godfather. That's what this is. These are just everybody's pulling out pieces and just firing, you know, willy-nilly. All right, 95th and Brown Deer. A Milwaukee man, 51, was shot shortly before noon near 95th and Brown Deer. During an apparent argument, he was treated at the hospital. 38th and Congress. A man was shot, 30-year-old man, was shot and killed near 38th and Congress around 7 p.m. Saturday. Around 11 p.m. A boy, 17, showed up at the hospital for treatment of gunshot wounds. Investigators are looking where the shooting occurred. And then Sunday, 34th and Wright, four people were shot early Sunday near 34th and Wright. Police officers said people were they were investigating reckless driving around 1 a.m. when they heard shots and went to help the victims. A 16-year-old girl, a 16-year-old girl, you might want to ask the question about why the 16-year-old girl was out on the street at 1 a.m., but I digress. Two men, 19, and one man, 20, were taken to the hospital for treatment of their injuries. Police say they were expected to survive. Just, And this is, I guess what's so frustrating about this is this is just normal. 
This has become accepted. Oh, this is what we're going to have. And you're going to have the usual platitudes. And, you know, you'll have the aldermen say, well, this is, boy, 100 bullet casings. And, you know, and six people shot. Oh, that that's really too bad. You know, we're going to condone. We're, we've got to do something to toughen up on gun violence. Well, yeah, you do have to do that. And it starts by catching the people who are responsible for this and getting them off the streets for long periods of time. Because it, it really... You know, you're talking about an incredibly dangerous area. As we discussed last week, the state of Wisconsin in general, crime is stable, maybe even going down. Southeastern Wisconsin in general, and Milwaukee in particular, it is just a flat-out war zone. And on a daily basis, you hear stories like this. Six people shot 100 bullet casings. 100 bullet casings. Imagine living in these neighborhoods where this is going to happen. Imagine having to drive through some of these neighborhoods where this stuff happens. And that's the problem. You just never know where a giant gun battle is going to break out at any given time. And unfortunately, authorities right now don't have any clues or plans as to how it's to stop the the carnage that is literally on the streets. All right. Let us switch gears. Two weeks from tomorrow, uh, there's this little thing called an election. You've probably heard about it if you've been watching television or listening to the radio and you've heard all the ads, one ad after another, and maybe even if you still read uh, the Dead Tree newspaper, you know, maybe you've seen some of the stories about it. But two weeks from tomorrow, it, it it's all over, at least presumably. Now, we know that elections tend to drag on and drag on and drag on, but it, the, the voting is supposed to be concluded by two weeks from tomorrow. The thing is that it used to always be Election Day, you know, and people would show up at City Hall or your polling place or wherever, and you would cast a vote on, in, in this case, it would be, it's, it's going to be November 8th, but, you know, it would be ever whatever that Tuesday is in November. And that's when most people would vote, except for the occasional, you know, person who was going to be out of town and voted absentee. That, of course, that dynamic has changed. Absentee voting has taken off especially because of COVID. People decided, well, I don't want to go out. I don't want to stand in line, so I'm going to vote absentee. In addition to absentee mail-in voting, starting tomorrow in many communities, you have the in-person absentee voting. And that's candidly, that's how I'm going to vote. I wouldn't be surprised if tomorrow morning my wife and I go over to our local polling place and, you know, vote just to, to get it done. And then, of course, there's the people that vote on Election Day itself. I want to start off with a how-do-you-do-it question and why. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. All right, some people have probably already submitted their absentee ballots. Absentee ballots, at least in Wisconsin, as of the middle of last week, were running behind where they were the last two years. I think the numbers were by, like, last Wednesday, like in 2016, in 20. 18 and 2020, like about 56 percent of the absentee ballots that have been requested had been returned by last Wednesday. It's only 45 percent now. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be a huge pickup of this. So you've got absentee ballots that are out there waiting to be returned. You've got the option to do in-person early voting, which is the option that I choose for a variety of reasons. And then you've got the old-fashioned, it's, in this case, it's November 8th. You go out, you stand side-by-side with a lot of your fellow citizens, and you cast the vote. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. My question is, if you are voting this year, and if you're not, you know, you really should— 
But if you are voting, how are you planning to vote and why? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. All right. Two weeks from tomorrow is the election. You really have, have three choices. If you've applied for an absentee ballot, you can vote via the mail or you can drop that ballot off in person. You can in person in many, many communities starting tomorrow. You can show up at the appropriate polling places and you can cast an in-person absentee ballot or you can wait till November 8th and you can show up and you can vote. Um, how are you going to do it and why? 855-616-1620. Let's start with Mike in Illinois. Mike, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? Good. What do you think? How are you going to vote? I'm going to vote in person on Election Day, uh, 99% sure. Um, I have done absent or, uh, early voting once, but uh, I am a traditionalist. I appreciate Election Day. I consider it a special day, and I like to be a part of it. So more than likely, I will vote on Election Day. Yeah, thanks for the call, Mike. There, there is, and I've said this before, there is something I find to be cool, <laughs> for, for want of a better term, about, about showing up and standing in line with your fellow citizens. To me, it's the kind of ultimate act of, of democracy where to, to stand in line and to do that. So I, I enjoy that as well. Now, then you might say, well, Jeff, but you just said that you're going to do the in-person early voting. Well, yeah, I, I do, because as I get older, my tolerance for standing in lines go down. And this year in particular, um, my wife is is going to Florida leaving on on the 8th of November. And so it's like, well, she's got a morning flight. I've got to get her to the airport. You know, she's going to have she's not going to be around to early vote to, to, you know, in-person vote on the 8th. So that's why it just makes sense. Plus, I I like the idea of the in-person early voting because you don't have to wait in as long a lines. And at the same time, and I don't mean this to be a diss of my friends who work for the U.S. Mail Service, but I want to make sure that I know that my ballot is going to be received. And that is the one thing about the in-person early voting. You fill it out, you put it in the envelope, you seal it, you give it to the person there at City Hall at the polling place so you know they've got it. So to me, the in-person early voting is maybe it's the best of, of all worlds because you still you still get to go out and you still get to mark your ballots. I think with the exception of the first time I ever voted for president when I was way at college, I don't think that I have ever used the mail-in ballot option. 855-616-1620. Jeff, I always try to go early in the morning and hope my wife forgets to go vote. Otherwise, it just cancels out mine if you know what I mean. No, I know exactly what you mean. Um, Jeff, I'm voting in person for Ron Johnson and, you know, Tim Michaels. Going to vote in person. Jeff, I vote for mail, um, and I trust professional election workers. Well, I mean, I I think that I I get that. I just— to me, it's that the happy medium is is I still get the kick out of going and showing up in person and, and getting that ballot and delivering it in person without having to trust the mail. Jeff, uh, let's see. My husband and I are doing early in-person voting this week. It fits our schedule better, and we don't want to stand in line. Well, yeah, that's, I think we're— a lot of person, people like that. Jeff, I'm voting in person early. I don't want to risk last second issues that keep me from voting. Well, that's part of the issue too. You know, you, you know, once you've, I don't, I always, I always feel good after I, I've cast that ballot. Jeff, younger voter here, voting in person. I've always done it that way. Wouldn't know how to going about doing it any other way. Well, I mean, it's, it's very easy. I mean, you just 
look up your local you know polling place in your local community and they'll tell you what the hours are for early voting it's it's not that or in person voting it's not that difficult to do but yeah i get it i mean i understand you know showing up and just wanting to cast that ballot jeff for me it's in person early voting because i hate waiting in lines in and out in 10 minutes um in jefferson Jeff, um, let's see, I'm going to, uh, Jeff, I plan to do in-person early voting because I want to be done with this. Well, there is that certain appeal. It's kind of like, okay, but I, I will tell you, even if you vote, say, tomorrow, that doesn't mean that they're going to stop running the, the radio and the TV ads. You know, I, somebody was asking me, well, you know, after people vote, you know, what's the purpose? Is it, a, is it do you, do you, after people have already cast their vote, is it a diminishing return if you keep running the ads? And, and, and I always say not really because there, there's two reasons you run the ads. You run the ads to try to persuade those people who still might be undecided. But secondly, you run these ads to show your people, your supporters, that you're engaged in the campaign. If all of a sudden bunch of ads start disappearing or the, for example, a Senate committee pulls a lot of money that they were planning to, you know, run in Wisconsin. You don't see as many ads. That kind of sends this message that, okay, your candidate is losing and it has the potential for depressing turnout. Let's talk to uh, Jesse in West Bend. Jesse, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, good afternoon. Uh, I was talking to your your guy there in See, I got absentee, you know, mailed to me, and I usually just vote it, and that's it. But this time around, we got three referendums, and they're not listed on my ballot. So my question is, like, if I would have mailed these in and not show up in person, I guess I can't vote on them. Uh, so you're saying that on the ballot you got, referendum questions weren't on it? Huh. No. Never no, heard of it? No, never, no I, not to vote. Huh. Not to vote for or against. Um, absolutely not. Well, that Jesse, thanks. I don't, I don't know what to tell you because I, I, that that's, that's news to me because the ballot that you get, the absentee ballot that you get in the mail is supposed to be identical to the, the ballot that you get if you show up in person. I mean, there's not supposed to be any difference at all. So I honestly don't, I don't know what to tell you, whether you don't live in the municipality where they're asking the referendum questions or what. So I, I, I've never heard of that before because, again, the, the ballots, there's not supposed to be a difference between the, the ballots. You know, what's on the ballot when I go, for example, what's on the ballot when I go in Tuesday or tomorrow or Wednesday or whenever I do to early vote, that's supposed to be the same ballot as if I had requested an absentee ballot by mail or if I showed up next Tuesday. I don't know what to tell you. Um, Jeff, as a former 18-year poll worker, in person is the best way to vote. Jeff, I'm red, white, and blue as much as anybody, but I well, I don't I don't think this is a question of patriotism. I would never suggest that you're not patriotic if you vote by mail. I'm just I, I enjoy the process of voting. It's fun for me. Um Jeff, I'm retired and I will be voting absentee. I will be elsewhere on the voting date. I will do this despite the fact that um yeah, yeah, that um, right. And then he goes on. But, yeah, I'll be voting absentee. Well, if, obviously, if you're gone, um, that's it. Jeff, your last caller should contact City Village Hall town clerk. Yeah, that again, that doesn't make um, sense. Jeff, I'd like to have a mail in ballot so I can study and research the options on the ballot before casting my vote. 
Jeff, the referendum questions were definitely on my mail-in ballot that I got weeks ago. Yeah, again, I've never heard of that. Jeff, I'm advising people to do early in-person or in-person voting on November 8th. It's too easy to make a mistake in your absentee mailing, and clerks can't fix minor mistakes anymore. Um, Yeah, I personally will be working, you know, as an election worker. So I will early vote. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, that, that kind of makes sense. That's why I think it, it, is, it is easy to, you know, it, it is easy to, you know, make a mistake. And you don't want to get your ballot disqualified. That's like I say, to me, the happy medium is driving over, like, I think it'll be probably be tomorrow morning. And we'll, you know, we'll drive over, we'll cast our votes. They'll be there. We, we know that's done don't have to worry about anything happening. The votes are in the hopper, and then we sit back and wait two weeks to see how they turn out. Uh, Tom in Green Bay. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Tom. Tom, Tom, Tom. Tom in Green yeah, Bay. This is Tom. Hi, Tom. Go ahead. Yeah, I, yeah I'd just like to point out that if when you absentee ballot, you can follow your ballot on myvotewisconsin.gov, and you can actually see the fact that the clerk received your ballot through the mail. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's ways to check to make sure that, that you, you've you got that down. Of course, that's that ends up being that extra step. And by the way, I'm not I, I'm not casting doubt. I mean, look, I, I believe in the mail service. I it's And I'm sure the overwhelming majority of ballots that are sent in by mail actually get where they're supposed to do in a timely fashion and, and get counted. So however you vote, it, it's it's not an it's not necessarily an issue. I just like the idea of, of putting that ballot, well, you know, and you're voting on Election Day, I like the idea of putting it into that machine and then just seeing it, it be counted up. I like the idea of handing the envelope to the clerk and watching them put it wherever. Jeff, I plan on early voting because I'll be traveling on Election Day, but if I were home, I'd be voting on Election Day in person. I believe that means something positive. It's part of what connects us. If we don't show up, we demonstrate that we care less about the process and more about the results. The process is important, especially because people die to make it happen. Well, I, I think... I think, you know, voting itself is participating in the, you know, process of that. Jeff, I'm voting in person on Election Day. That way I know it's in. I don't trust any other way. There should be no in mail-in voting except for special circumstances. You know, that's interesting because in Wisconsin a number of years ago they changed the law. The law used to be that in order to vote absentee, like by mail, you had to demonstrate that you were unwilling and or unable to vote in election, on Election Day. So, you know, you're out of town. I, I'm not going to be there. I'm in college. I'm away at college. I can't vote. Okay. And then they just changed it to drop the, the unable, and now it's just pretty much unwilling. So you say, if, if I prefer to do something else, and I'm, I, I look, that's, that's just the way of the future. It, it's just this is, and I understand that there's people who think there's problems with mail-in balloting, stuff like that. And, you know, that's a conversation for another day. But the reality is that this, this process is, is with us. This is the, the future as more and more of us do things in a remote fashion. That said, that said, I, I always encourage people to vote in person or whether it's early in person or whether it's on election day, just because, again, I think it's a cool thing to, to do to actually take the time, go down to City Hall, fill out that ballot with your fellow voters and participate in the process. I, I think it's it's a lesson in civics that I always enjoy. But if you can't do that and you choose to vote absentee by mail, do that as well. The important thing is vote. 
Well, a number of people are, of course, always interested in the, the horse race, and we look at polls, and, and I understand polls have kind of gotten it wrong um, lately, and, and particularly when it comes to measuring the depth of Republican support. But in any event, I, I think it's kind of interesting to see where the, the races are. The Marquette University Law School poll, their final one before the election, comes out on, on Wednesday. Um, I from, from my conversations with people in the know, these are very, very close races. Um, the the Evers Michaels race remains pretty much of a of a pick'em. You know, you know, six five, you know, pick'em. Um, the Johnson race, Johnson in most of I'm told the private polling, Johnson ahead by a few points. Um, I, I don't know that it was six points as shown by the Marquette Law School poll, but it, it's more than just like a, a statistical dead heat. A um, couple of new polls out. CNN has a poll out, and, and this one appears to me to oversample Democrats. It's a little bit out of step. It has Johnson leading Barnes by one point, which is in the margin of error. I think that probably misrepresents where the race is. It has Evers 50, Michaels 48. That's within the margin of error. Michaels uh, trailing Evers by two. Again, I think... The Evers-Michaels race in particular is extremely close. The the Johnson-Barnes race, a little bit less so. But a lot of it does, in fact, depend on turnout. There, there's no question about it. Which brings me to the, the one of, I think, one of the really interesting stories that's out there. Joe Biden, the president of the United States, is essentially on a milk carton this election season. He's not out campaigning for Democrat candidates. He He's not out on the stump you know, attending big fundraisers for candidates. He's pretty much, uh, again, in, in the Oval Office or in Delaware or wherever he is, as opposed to on the campaign trail, in part because, well, his his numbers are, are terrible. You know, no matter how you look at it, if you ask, do you approve of the job he's doing or disapprove of it, doesn't matter whether it's a Democrat-leaning poll, a Republican-leaning poll, or a poll with, like, sort of no no particular preferences. You know, in general, Biden is at least 10 points underwater, maybe more. So he's an incredibly unpopular president, which makes it more difficult for Democrats to run when you don't have the leader of your party that you can you can trot out and come out and campaign for you. But one of the things that you, you do have, and this is the story in the local newspaper, in an effort to try to you know, motivate people to come out. And I think there's really this year, there's an enthusiasm gap. Um, and you see this from time to time in elections. And I've talked about this before. I think, for example, in 2018, the last midterm election, to the extent there was an enthusiasm gap, it was on the Republican side. Democrats were incredibly motivated. They didn't like Donald Trump. They didn't like what the Trump presidency was doing. And they came out in droves in the midterm. They were very, very motivated, run through walls to vote. And I think, for example, I believe that that is one of a handful of factors that led to Tony Evers beating Scott Walker. It was just the particularly in Dane County and in Milwaukee County, you had people who were just motivated to run through walls to go out and vote, not so much vote for Tony Evers, but rather vote against anybody who had an R after their name simply because you wanted to send a message to Donald Trump that we don't like Donald Trump. Then that you've seen these enthusiasm gap things happen before uh, 2010, um, Obama's first midterm election. You, you saw that happen again. People, Republicans, were incredibly motivated to go out and to vote for anybody who had a D after their name. And I think to the extent there there is an enthusiasm gap this year, I mean, it starts at the top. And I think Democrats would clearly tell you that they are 
that voters are less motivated to go out and vote for Democratic candidates than Republicans are to go out and vote for Republican candidates. And that's just what, what happens. So in an effort to try to get over that, um, Joe Biden isn't coming to Wisconsin to campaign for candidates, but rather um, Barack Obama is coming to Milwaukee on on Saturday to try to drive up Democratic turnout. Now, it says something when, in order to drive up Democratic turnout, you've you got to bring in a guy who's been out of office for for six years. But that's that's what they're trying to do, create the sense of urgency, get people to vote. And I guess we'll know, you know, after a while whether it works or not. But the underlying problem here is you've got to go to Barack Obama because Joe Biden is so incredibly unpopular. Now, you can argue whether it's fair to treat him as unpopular, but but he is. And very few candidates want to have him come and do a big rally for him because it's going to be sort of like the, the kiss of death. So to this point, um, one of the big questions is whether, you know, Joe Biden, who's 80 years old, whether he's going to seek reelection. And, you know, he was doing an interview um, Friday with somebody from MSNBC, and they asked that question. They said, hey, you know, are, are you going to run again? And he said, well, I haven't made a formal decision, um, but it is my intention to run again. He said, now, the reason I haven't announced yet is once I make that judgment, a whole series of regulations kick in, and I have to treat myself as a candidate, and I've got these fundraising rules and stuff like that. But he says, my, my intention is I'm going to run. That's what I plan to do. And then one of the hosts said, all right, um, do you have any concerns about your age? And he says, well, watch me. Am I slowing up? Watch me. Am I slowing up? Um, and he says, and I think, you know, people should take a real hard look, and if they conclude that I'm missing a beat, then they should support some other Democrat if they decide to run. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. All right. Joe Biden says, look at me. A- am I am I slowing down? Am I am I slipping up? Um, do you have concerns about my age? 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. If the president asks that question to you, Republican or Democrat, am I slowing down? Am I slipping up? Am I too essentially too old to keep doing this job? How would you answer him? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. which is the WTMJ talk and text line. Okay, so so Joe Biden says he's planning on running again. Now, this is a guy who's—he's not on the campaign trail at all in the midterms because he is so incredibly unpopular that— I don't want to say absolutely no candidates, but almost no candidates want to be sharing a stage with him because he will drag them down. But he says, no, my my plan is to run again. I just haven't announced it because, well, once I do that, these campaign finance rules kick in. And so I've got time to do that. But my question, he says, is watch me. Am I slowing up now? okay? Joe Biden will be 80 years old next month, November 20th. He turns 80. So if he were to run again and be reelected, that would be November of uh, 2024. He would be 82 years old at the time he starts his next campaign. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. Look, I don't care if you're a Republican or Democrat. I, I don't care if you, you know, love Joe Biden and, and hate Donald Trump or, or whatever. <laughs> Isn't it pretty clear 
that that he's struggling? Isn't it pretty clear that, yeah, he, he is slowing up? Isn't it pretty clear that sometimes you watch this and it's kind of painful? There, there's just, at, at some point in time, and you can say this about some of the Republicans as well, at some point in time, don't people need to get off the stage? You know, we have, in many aspects of business, we have mandatory retirement ages. You know, you, a lot of law firms, a lot of um, corporations, the, the rule is 65, 68, 70, whatever it is. But, I mean, how can Joe Biden seriously think that given, you know, where he is now, it would be a good idea for him to run for re-election two years from now when he would be 82 years old? 855-616-1620. And you can make this argument about Republicans as well. But at some point in time, don't we need to say that we need to start getting some younger people in? Like like maybe let's find some of those whippersnappers who are 65 or something. Wouldn't it be interesting to maybe see if we could even elect some people who weren't Medicare eligible? 855-616-1620. Let's start with James on the south side. James, you're on WTMJ. How you doing, Jeff? Good. I think— uh... I think he is slowing down, and I think that, uh, like you've been talking about for uh, the first part of your show here, uh, with uh, parties and that, I'd like to see that, uh, you know, if the Republicans are are, are the ones that are going to, how do you say the word, uh, take control on that, uh, let them have a good sweep in that, and, and sweep out uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats out of office in that. Let's change also to the age, uh, mandatory age, to 75 for for not only for the Congress and everything else, but also for the judges and stuff. Let's let's make let's make some changes, uh, positive changes, so that the government flows better instead of, uh, you know, like you all say, the squeaky wheel type of thing. Here is uh, I think the squeaky wheel is kind of uh, last millennium. Uh, it's time yeah. for the 21st century to come on. Well, James, thanks for calling. Well, look, I I think that that raises an interesting point. I, when our founding fathers. At, at the time, you, you know, you set up these things. I mean, what, what was the life expectancy of people, like like 50 or 60? May, maybe it might have even been lower than that, depending on where you look at it. No, nobody ever anticipated that you would have people regularly living to be there into their 70s and their 80s and, and their 90s. It would, we, this was just an unheard of thing. Now, it's great that, that longevity has increased, but the reality is, as we get older— we, we all tend to slow down. There, that's just the reality of this. And I'm actually with you, James. I, I think that just like, for example, we have minimum age requirements, you've got to be 35 years old to be to, to run for president, right? I think there should be maximum age requirements as well, that, you know, after a, a certain point, if you're going to hit whatever that number is, we, we can argue, should it be 75 or whatever, that if you're going to hit 75, you know, during the course of your term, then you, you can't run again. And I would apply that, yes, I would apply it to federal judges, I would apply it to Supreme Court justices, I would apply it to U.S. senators, I would apply it to congressmen and congressmen. Congresswomen as well, because what happens is, especially in some of these states that are not competitive, what happens is once you get people that are elected, um, a, a Democrat in California, for example, you know, they're and, unless they are challenged by somebody in their own party, which almost never happens, they're just elected and reelected and reelected and reelected, and and even if they're slowing down, it it doesn't matter. But I mean, seriously. 82 years old, I think Ronald Reagan was one of the—I think he was the greatest president of my lifetime. I I firmly believe that. But there's no question. I mean, Ronald Reagan was slowing down at the end. Ronald Reagan was not as sharp and not as with it um, 
in the last two years of his term as he was, you know, when when he took over. And I think part of that is a prod, you know, is a prospect of age. Um, Jeff, is a vote for Biden really a vote for his running mate? You know, would he be removed from office due to incompetence? Um, Jeff, um, Joe Biden can at least read the room and stay out of visiting Wisconsin pre-election, unlike Trump, who should get off the stage. Well, I I think you can make the same argument about Trump. Trump is, what, 76? He'll be 78 if he runs again, I believe, you know, two years from now. I'd, I'd make that same argument. This is not... This is not a, a partisan sort of thing. This is not a, gee, Donald Trump's too old. Well, how can you say, you know, Joe Biden's too old if you're not going to say Donald Trump's too old? I, I'm saying at some point in time, you know, do, do you need to have, you know, people, do you need to have the 80-plus-year-old Nancy Pelosi's of the world? Do you need, you know, can't we find somebody in their 60s, for example, who can run? Um, Jeff, Benjamin Franklin was in his 70s during the Revolutionary War, Um Yes, pretty sure they had the idea that old men can exist. Okay, so that's you know, that's somebody that wants to be snarky. Yeah, Benjamin Franklin was the exception. If you look at the life expectancy of people in the 1700s, Benjamin Franklin was the exception, the dramatic exception to that. Jeff, uh, Joe Biden, if he doesn't think he's slowing down, is delusional and clearly in denial. We need new and fresh ideas in place for these things. Yeah, Jeff, of course this is the case, and it goes for the Supreme Court as well. Right. Um, that's that's the case. You look at some of these Supreme Court justices who just hang on and hang on and, and hang on and hang on, and the truth is they may have been brilliant jurists when they were in their 40s and 50s and 60s, but by the time they hit their mid-80s or their you know 90s or whatever, they are slowing down, and in some cases, dramatically. You know, that's just the, the reality of this. And I, I think in some cases, I understand it's tough to want to step off the—, the it, it's Look, it's got to be incredibly hard to give up being leader of the free world. Donald Trump still hasn't done that. Joe Biden is going to have to be dragged, kicking and screaming off the stage. But, yeah, you, you watch the Biden appearances. And come on, even if you're on the left, be honest. They're, they're painful to see. He's clearly not— not as with it as you look at the Joe Biden of 20 years ago and stuff. He's, he's just not. He's slipping. Does that mean that he's incompetent and can't do the job? I'm not going there. But, okay, do you really want to say, okay, four years from now, if he would be reelected and be in the middle of his term, if he's like he is now, can you imagine what it's going to be like four years from now? And, and it's just, it's a tough job being the leader of the free world. And I understand that there's some young people, just because you're young doesn't necessarily mean that you're suited for that particular job, but it's a tough, strenuous job. And I think you need newer blood, whether it's newer conservative blood or newer liberal blood. And I guess if Joe Biden were to ask me, well, am I, am I slowing up? The answer is, yeah, you're, you're, you're slowing up, I guess, compared to what? But yeah, you're, you're definitely slowing up compared to most things. One of our listeners who wants to argue with me is saying, well, there, there were there were plenty of older people among our founding fathers. What? <laughs> there were a handful of people that were in their 60s or their 70s. But, but here is the reality. 1776, America's founding, the average American citizen, you know what the life expectancy was? 35. It was 35. Now, part of that was due to the high infant mortality rate, which, which you know, reduced it dramatically, of course. But 35, 1787, average, uh, it still it was like 35 years old. So I, I think, yes, 
Could you have people that lived into their their 70s? Of course you could, but that was the exception. The average lifespan was 35, and I don't think our founding fathers ever anticipated that you would have a Dianne Feinstein, you know, liberal senator from California. She's, and there's already, there's all these indications that she's slipping badly. She's 89 years old. She's up, she's already filed the papers indicating that she intends to run for re-election in 2024 when she will be 91 years old. I mean, seriously? 91 years old. And the truth is, in California, if she runs for re-election, she's not going to get challenged in the primary by somebody. So, I mean, she'll walk into that. At some point in time, isn't it time to say enough is enough? Whether you say it to Dianne Feinstein or you say it to Joe Biden or you say it to Charles Grassley from Iowa or whatever, maybe we should just reach a point where we say, you know, time to kind of move on and enjoy however much time you have left Thanks for your service, and now let's get some younger blood in there. Maybe even some people in their 70s, for goodness sakes. All right, lots of stuff coming up in the next hour of the program, including the sins of the son, should they be put on the parents? Interesting conversation. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. This this is a weird story, and I don't know what to make of it other than to simply say it, it's a weird story. Now, most people, when they're in a position of responsibility, what they try to do is when, when it comes time for them to leave— what they try to do is, um, you know, make preparations. It's like, okay, I'm planning to, you know, if, if somebody is planning to retire in, in two months or whatever, you you notify the people, you start making arrangements. Um, when, when I left the U.S. Attorney's Office years and years ago, I had this full caseload. Well, I don't, I never thought it would be fair to my employers if I simply said, okay, I've got all these different cases that I've accumulated over 12 or 13 years. Here I'm going in two weeks and then expect people to have to pick them up. No. So I think what I did is I said, okay, three months from now, I'm planning on leaving. It was two or three months. And these are the cases that I want to work through. And these are the ones that are coming up for trials. And I'm going to do, I'm going to do a trial in Chicago that I agreed to do. And I'm going to do these cases. And then some of the ones that are you know, hanging fire, some of the ones that aren't going to be coming up, th- those are the ones you start to pass off, and you, you, know, you work with the people who are going to be covering you. And that's, that, that's what I thought was the responsible thing to do, and I think it's what most people would think is the responsible thing to do. Whatever your job is, it's like, okay, I'm not going to leave my, my employer in the lurch. Now, sometimes it happens that you you know, have this bad experience and there's kind of a, a blow up or, or whatever and somebody gets fired or, you know, you walk off in anger. But that's that that's rare, especially when you're dealing with, with professionals. Typically with professionals, it's, and, and again, assuming it's not an emergency situation. I mean, maybe if, if you're in a position of authority and you've got all this responsibility and then suddenly a, a medical situation, you know, comes up and you're unable to perform your duties, well, okay, that's, that's just that kind of stuff happens. But I'm talking about the regular situation where you know you're planning on leaving. You've got all this stuff that you have done. Most responsible people would say, "All right, I'm I'm going to I'm either going to stay till I, I get this stuff cleared up, or I'm going to make arrangements for other people to do it, or I, I'm going to be available to to come back and kind of help out, you know, just to, to clear this stuff up." Which brings to mind the story of. Brian Peterson. 
Now, Brian Peterson was the Milwaukee County Medical Examiner. You know, these are the people who do the the autopsies and, and things like that. He was one of the highest paid employees in Milwaukee County. For example, in 2021, he made... just slightly more than my producer Charlie makes. So what ended up happening is he he just, he he suddenly announced last month that he was retiring. Okay, well, I mean, I understand people get to retire. And like I say, normally, especially if you're in a position like you're the medical examiner, what you want to do is you want to have a glide path that's out of there. You say, okay, I'm, I'm going to retire in two or three months, and so I'm going to stop doing autopsies and things like that. Now, why does this become important? Because if you're, let's say you've got, and we've got all these homicides in Milwaukee. Okay, well, in almost all cases in homicides, one of the witnesses, if the case goes to trial, is the medical examiner because they'll testify they did the autopsy, they'll testify as to what the cause of death is, all these different types of things, right? So, so that's the deal. So normally you would expect that, okay, if you're going to retire from the medical examiner's office, you would either make arrangements for somebody to cover all these cases that you have pending or simply say, okay, well, fine, I, I understand I'm going to work through this, I'm going to retire, but I, I will come back as I'm needed to testify about the results of the autopsies that I've done while I was the medical examiner. That apparently is not happening. Story in the Journal Sentinel talking about the, it, it's, it's in the criminal justice system in Milwaukee County, people are playing a, a version of where's Waldo, but they're saying, you know, where where is Dr. Brian Peterson? Because no note explaining his sudden exit, filed his retirement paperwork. There's this huge backlog of high-profile homicide cases, and now he's, he's apparently not around, um, at least not around to voluntarily come in and, and handle cases. Now, this came to the head because there was a preliminary hearing that was scheduled for a former Milwaukee police officer, Michael Matoli, who's been charged with first-degree reckless homicide in the death of Joel Acevedo in 2020. Um, Well, so it's a pretrial hearing, and he was, the medical examiner, was supposed to testify and, you know, give his opinion as to what the cause of death was. Well, apparently what happened at the hearing last week is that the the state couldn't produce the, the medical examiner. And so as a result, the, you know, the judge had no choice but to delay the proceedings. Now, they haven't dismissed them, but they've had to delay them. The judge in this case, David Borowski, asked, you know, what's going on? He said, I, I want to clarify, is the medical examiner, the former medical examiner, unavailable, or is he not cooperating? And the district attorney apparently said, well, we've spoken with him, and we're in the process of trying to personally serve him a subpoena which I will tell you means he's not cooperating. If you've got a subpoena, I mean, normally what would happen in a situation like this is if I was the prosecutor and I had somebody who was, you know, retired in this situation, you'd call him up and you'd say, hey, doc, you know, the preliminary hearing is scheduled for October 18th. I need you in court. And of course, you know, we'll pay your fees or whatever that might be. And I wouldn't expect to be told, well, I'm not going to be there unless you give me a subpoena. And then, I would say, okay, well, if you need a subpoena, I'll have one waiting for you in court when you show up. That's how you would normally handle it. But apparently the doc is declining to show up unless and until he gets subpoenaed. 
So, you know, now the case has been, you know, rescheduled. And this apparently has, has gone on in other cases as well, that you have a situation where you've got the former medical examiner who is not willingly making himself available and, <laughs> to, to testify. And it's a big deal because, look, a lot of times you have problems with cases where you have a defendant, where you, you have witnesses that disappear. I mean, I, I get that. You know, you've got a, a shooting that, that happens in an urban area, and the trial is like eight months or a year after the shootings occurred, and, you know, you're going around to try to get the witnesses, and they've moved, or they don't want to testify, or they're not cooperating, or whatever. That's all, that's all well and good. You expect that that's going to be a problem, but you don't expect that you're going to have a problem getting the medical examiner to court, and yet that's precisely, you know, what's going on. They're talking about, you know, how the medical examiner's office is in a, in a state of, of kind of chaos, how there's a growing backlog of cases. And you know who this is really frustrating for is the families of victims. Because, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot is justice delayed is justice denied. You know, so let's say it's your loved one who has been the, the victim of a horrible crime, been murdered or whatever. The person who did it is scheduled to go on trial. You want that to happen, and now you're finding that the case can't proceed because the, the guy that did the autopsy is making it difficult or impossible to, to just voluntarily cooperate and come in. It, it's, just, it's just a mess. And I guess what's really tough to understand is you have somebody who is a professional who was paid $261,000 in 2021. So very, very well compensated, a position of responsibility. And for whatever reason, the guy doesn't appear to be cooperating or at least not making it easy on the district attorney's office. And all that does is help further traumatize the victims and benefit the, the criminals who committed the crimes. It's its a story that it, it's almost unbelievable that's occurring. And you, you got to wonder, is there another side to this story? I, I keep I keep expecting that, okay, it'll come out that maybe there's some huge health issue or something like that, but I don't get that sense because that's not what the DA's office is saying. It's not like, oh, we couldn't get this particular witness because they've got a huge health issue and they're not available and they're hospitalized and they're receiving all these treatments or something. You would understand that. This one just appears to be the guy does not want to cooperate. And as a result, you know, you've got all these cases that are getting delayed and I don't, I don't know what the alternative is, because if it continues, they've either got to subpoena him, bring him in, or you've got to redo all the autopsies, which is just an absolute mess. So I don't know what's up here, but this is a huge story that is well worth watching. When we come back, Sins of the Sun visited on the parents. I'll explain. We'll discuss. Okay, so earlier today, Ethan Crumbly ended up pleading guilty to all charges against him. Ethan Crumbly is the, he, at the time he was 15 years old, he's the kid who walked in to his high school, Oxford High School in Michigan, about 40 miles north of Detroit, killed four students and injured seven others. Okay, so he, he pled guilty to all charges. He will, in all likelihood, be sentenced to life in prison um, life in prison, but because he's a juvenile, you can't sentence him to life in prison without parole unless he gets a hearing or something like that. But he's going to be going away for a long time. But he pled guilty to all the charges. There was no deal, from my understanding, that was cut with regard to sentencing recommendations or thing of things of, of the like. 
The interesting thing about the Crumley case is it doesn't end with his guilty pleas. Rather, this is the kid whose parents have also been charged. And as a matter of fact, they have been sitting in prison. They've been in pretrial detention since this incident happened last year. And they have been accused essentially of, of what's called gross, they've been called of, of manslaughter through gross negligence. That, that's it. And the prosecutor in Michigan has decided that if it were not for the gross negligence of the parents, this shooting would not have occurred. So let's review the bidding a little bit on, on what happened here. Um, the gun that he used, the handgun that he used to, to shoot and, and kill the four and to injure the other seven, was a pre-early Christmas gift from his parents, a semi-automatic 9mm Sig Sauer handgun. My new beauty, he called it on um, Internet. The day after Thanksgiving, he and his father had gone together to a Michigan gun shop, and they bought it. He and his mother then spent the day testing out the gun. She took him to the firing range, and, and they shot the gun. The gun was stored unlocked in the parents' bedroom. Okay, that was, that was on Friday. On Monday, when a teacher reported seeing their, the kid searching online for ammunition, she, she contacted the mother. The mother's response to the kid was a text, laugh out loud, I'm not mad at you, you just have to learn to not get caught. A day later, the kid brought the gun to school, fatally shot four classmates using the gun that his parents had, had purchased for him. On the morning of the shooting, the parents were urgently called to the high school after one of the teachers found an alarming note that the kid has drawn, scrawled with images of a gun, a person who had been shot, a laughing emoji, and the words, blood everywhere, the thoughts won't stop, help me. School officials told the parents during the in-person meeting that they were required to seek counseling for their son. The teenager's parents did not want their son to be removed from school that day and did not ask him whether he had a gun with him. They didn't search the backpack he brought with him to the office. And so the prosecutor says the idea that a parent could read these words, know that their son had access to a deadly weapon that they gave him, is unconscionable, and they think it's criminal. He was then, of course, allowed back into class a few hours later, he moved from the words and the drawings into actual bloodshed, walked into a bathroom carrying his backpack, emerged with the handgun, and began to, to fire. There's also all sorts of evidence that leading up to this, before they bought him the gun, there's all sorts of exchanges and texts showing that the kid was clearly emotionally troubled. And apparently the parents, even after this meeting, the day of the shooting, when they said, no, we're not going to take the kid out of school, it never occurred to them to go back home and check to see whether the gun was gone or whatever. So anyhow, the prosecutor has now brought charges against the parents, and you know he's going to have to prove manslaughter through gross negligence, which means he has to prove that the parents knew of a potentially dangerous situation, that they could have averted harm through ordinary care, and that the harm would have been apparent to an ordinary mind. That is foreseeable. 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. Okay, the, the actual shooter himself, the kid, has now been convicted and will spend most, if not all, of his life in prison for what's going on. The DA's office is continuing to prosecute the parents, and they're very, very serious about this. I don't think the facts are too much in question. My question is, 
All right, do you think the parents should be prosecuted, especially now that the kid has pled guilty? 855-616-1620. Is this a prosecutorial overreach, or is this exactly what we need more of when we see these kids acting out in incredibly violent fashions, and it is apparent that the parents at least either know or should know that they're in the process of doing this? In this case, you clearly had a troubled kid, The parents bought him the firearm. The parents put the firearm in a position where the kid could get access to it. And then, despite all these alarm bells going off, the parents did nothing to investigate whether or not he had the gun. Is that enough to hold them responsible for what the kid did? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. We're talking about the parents of Ethan Crumley. This is the 15, then 15-year-old who parents buy him a gun on Friday. Mom teaches him how to shoot. She takes him to the target range. He's all over social media talking about he's got his gun, he's lovely, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He's writing these disturbing notes about how he's got thoughts in his head and blood and dead bodies. Parents get called to the school before the shooting. They say, well, we're, we're not going to pull him out. You know, we're, we're, we're not going to pull him out to do this. Parents don't mention that, oh, by the way, we bought the kid a gun on Friday and it's unlocked, you know, in our bedroom. Parents don't check the kid's backpack. And next thing you know, he's responsible for killing four and wounding seven people. Jeff, I think there's enough to convict the parents. They clearly did nothing and they did not care either. Jeff, if the parents knew about all the potential problems the son had, but yet they bought the firearms, taught him to use it, and then left it where he could find it, yes, indeed, they should be charged for enabling the crime. Absolutely charge the parents as an accessory. Make an example of this case. We need to stop these school shootings. There's way too many of them. Jeff, this is a no-brainer. If it weren't for the parents, this shooting wouldn't have happened. All the writing was on the wall from the day he got the gun. Not saying he wouldn't have shot somebody in the future with a different gun, but this particular shooting would not have happened. Hang both parents. They are not responsible gun owners. I think the hang is sort of like a speaking in sort of generalized terms as well of this. Jeff, we need more of this. Parents need to be held accountable. It's not the school's teacher's job to parent the kids. Look, I I agree with the person who said this is a no-brainer, and I would like to see aggressive prosecutors take more cases like this. Look, every time a kid goes out and steals a car, for example, or commits a burglary, I'm not saying that the parents knew or should have known that was going to happen, but in this case, you knew the kid had mental problems. You buy him the gun, you teach him how to use the gun, and then you ignore all the stuff that he's putting out there that clearly indicates that he's thinking about using the gun. You ignore that, you don't disclose this, and then the kid ends up shooting people. Yeah, I think this is gross negligence. I love this theory, and I would like to see more prosecutors use it because I think we have every right to expect that parents, while parents can't monitor their kids 24-7— This is a situation where the shooting would not have occurred were it not for the behavior of Ethan Crumbly's parents. (music) 
got to love a little Smuggler's Blues there by Glenn Fry. Okay, the numbers are in, and, and they're not pretty. Now, I, I want to have a discussion that kind of is forward-looking as opposed to looking back. There is no question, and I, I don't, again, I don't care what your politics are, there is no question that what happened to school kids during the pandemic was just a disaster. And by any objective measure, the the virtual learning for almost all kids, not all kids, but almost all kids, virtual learning was just a, a disaster. And for some kids, it was worse than others, but it really didn't work for, for many. And And you can argue, I think you can make a compelling case that the schools were closed way too long because of COVID, but I, I don't even want to go down that route. Let us just look at where we are now, because now you're starting to see the results of a lot of the test scores that are coming in, a lot of the national test scores. And by any objective measure, kids are falling further and further behind. I mean, here's the story in today's Wall Street Journal. Math scores dropped in every state during the pandemic. Uh, The largest education department analysis of test scores since the COVID-19 pandemic began reveals sweeping declines. The nation's schools, this is how the Wall Street Journal reports it, recorded the largest drop in math scores ever this year, with 4th and 8th grade students in nearly every state showing significant declines. In the most sweeping analysis of test scores since the start of the pandemic, the 2022 National Assessment of Educational Progress, known as the Nation's Report Card, also revealed a nationwide plunge in reading that wiped out three decades of Uh, gains. Low-performing fourth-grade students saw larger declines in both math and reading scores when compared to high-performing ones. Black and Hispanic students in the fourth grade saw larger drops in math than white students. And, you know, without getting too far in the weeds, there's a story in the local newspaper which talks about how the, the, in Wisconsin, the racial disparity um, between black and white students Wisconsin has the largest racial disparity in the nation. So that would be particularly, I guess, in like the urban areas where you have, you know, a a larger proportion of minority students. Those numbers are are dropping more than in the suburban areas. But the bottom line is for kids all over, it's a mess. And for some of the lower performing schools and the kids who are already struggling, it's it's just a mess with hair on it. It's just a dumpster fire. So now the question becomes, what do we do moving forward? And there's really a couple choices. The one choice is we do nothing. We, we simply say, okay, you've, you've got all these kids that have fallen dramatically behind, and we'll just dumb down the, the standards moving forward. Because, I mean, look, here, here's here's the truth of this. I mean, if you... If you're supposed to be doing math at fourth grade level, or you're supposed to be reading at a fourth grade level when you're in fourth grade, and you're only reading or doing math at a second grade level, it's not going to get better. You know, you're still, you're always going to be be having that gap because math and reading builds upon itself. So if you do nothing to try to bridge that gap, What's going to be happening is by the time they're in sixth grade, they're, they're going to be still you know, reading at a fourth grade level or a third grade level. So you either have to just simply say, okay, we are going to accept the fact that we, we have a generation of kids 
who are going to be, on average, underperforming. And there's always going to be some exceptional kids. I understand that. But just, and particularly, you know, for for persons of color. You know, we have to either just say, okay, th- this is going to be the new normal. We're going to accept the fact that they have this huge gap that they're never going to make up. Or you have to say, what can we do to try to make this gap up? Okay, our number is 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. Now, what I'm going to say might be somewhat controversial. And I look, we, we've talked about school choice and things like that before. It's no secret. I'm a proponent of school choice. But this is this is a bigger sort of, of issue because there, there's going to be a lot of kids that, you know, even if you have school choice, they're not they're not going to take advantage of it. They're, they're, they're going to be, you know, in the public school system, etc. So, you know, for, for some kids, it might be self-correcting if the parents decide, okay, you get expanded school choice, we're going to try to get our kids out of failing public schools, and we'll put them into the other schools where maybe they can catch up. But that's not the issue right now. The issue is, how do you make up this gap? Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. I think we need to have a complete reevaluation of how we teach kids and what the timing is. And I think part of the answer to this is, candidly, it's, it's almost it's year-round schools. Now, and so instead of, you know, we're going to knock off in June and we're not going to come back till late August or September, I, I think it's re-examining how we do schools and recognizing that we need year-round schools, you know, with a, with a week break in between or something like that. But you've got to get the kids back into the classrooms more. You've got to get more learning. You've got to get more remedial learning. You cannot, it seems to me, accept the fact that you've got fourth graders who are, according to these numbers, they're, they're doing you know, second-grade math because they're going to be eighth-graders doing fifth-grade math. 855-616-1620. I say year-round schools. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620. Look, there there is no question that from an educational perspective on kids, the pandemic was an absolute disaster. Closing schools, and we've talked in the past about whether that was an overreaction and we kept them closed too long, but for most kids, it did not work out well. I think you cannot argue with that, and now you're starting to see the numbers. So now the question is, okay, what, what, what do we do? Do you just accept the fact that you've lost the generation of kids? I guess one of the ideas that's being floated around is you, you hold kids back. So if you're in fourth grade and you're not doing fourth grade work, okay, well, you redo fourth grade. All right, that's, that's an option, I guess, but I, I think— to me, that's not as desirable an option as to saying, okay, what we need to do is we, we need to go to year-round schools. Um, we need to have more teaching. We need to have more classroom work with these kids. We need to do more remedial work because I just don't think you can do nothing. Let's start with Jane in Muskego. Jane, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Thanks Jane. for taking my call. Sure. <clears throat> Oh, boy. Yeah, you opened up a can of worms. Well, not a can of worms. It's a very good topic, and I hope it does get addressed in both the public and the private um, school systems. Um, Former educator here, Mm -hmm. and um, lots of family in the education, and lots of friends. Um, What I feel and what has been discussed within these small groups is they've got to get... um, 
remedial or we would say interventionists in there. They need extra hands, break these huge classes these teachers have into small groups and and address the issues. They're going to have to assess them, see where they at, and then in a small group work with these kids to bring them up. It's going to take a lot of work. I think it can be done, but of course, again, it's going to come with a price tag because you have to pay these people, mm-hmm. you know, to do this. Um, yeah, are, are you talking about Jane holding people back? You know, so what? What do you do with the fourth grader who's oh, doing no, second should, grade? Oh, okay. I don't think they should hold them back. I mean, the COVID wasn't their fault. No, no. I'm I'm talking about they've got to address these problems right now during the school year, and the schools need interventionists, um, more remedial help. You know, to help these kids that are behind, that are in the grade level, are not working at grade level, and then um, bring them up. It can be done. It's a hard job. It's a lot of work. Yeah. But I truly believe it can be done. Thanks to call. I appreciate. It. Well, I mean, I guess that that's the idea is how how do you how do you do it within the framework of, you know, what what we have going on now if you don't if you don't hold kids back. If you don't I and I, I guess that's and, and that's see that's where I'm wrestling with. I, I come back with the idea that maybe you you need more classroom instruction. I agree with everything Jane is saying when she's talking about you need remedial stuff. And you know some people are saying, well that you know that punishes the kids who are you know doing the work. Well, you know not not really. First of all, I don't know that I see year-round school as a punishment. I see year-round school quite candidly as just something that maybe most makes the most effective use of, of resources. And by year-round school, you know you're you're talking quarters or something like that. I mean, do you really need summer off. I mean, I guess that's the fundamental question. Do you need to have a situation where, okay, you know, you're, you're going to have June, July, August off, especially when we know that, you know, there is the, this learning gap that, that's out there. You, you, you've got to address it. And I, to me, more classroom instruction is one of the ways to do it while still advancing kids because i mean i i don't know who wants to repeat fourth grade or who wants to have to repeat you know third grade or, or second grade and you know how long do you end up doing that but at the same time you can't just artificially advance kids can you because then you get to a situation where somebody gets to high school and they're reading at a fifth grade level and they're never going to succeed i mean no question about it jeff the kids need to receive the skills they need to live I say hold classes at the level the kids are performing with mixed-age kids. Well, that's a sort of controversial thing. Um, Jeff, I've been out of school for over three decades, but hearing you say the phrase, year-round school sent chills down my spine, kids need to enjoy summer. Well, I don't know. I mean, kids need to enjoy summer. Well, if, if, if you've got a kid who's in sixth grade who's reading at a third-grade you know, level, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe summer should be one of those times spent to trying to get the kids reading up because otherwise, yeah, it's nice. Hey, you had you had a great summer off when you were ten years old, but it doomed you for for years and years because you you ended up like failing in high school because you didn't have the basic skills you needed. So you know, there's you know an issue with that. Um, uh, let's see, Jeff, I agree with you. There also needs to be serious crackdowns on the behavior of kids who more or less hold classrooms hostage with their issues that disrupt learning 
for everyone. Administrators who enable the behavior with wrist slaps also need to be held accountable. Well, there's no question about that. And look, and I, I understand the problems with public education, with education period, are, are, are myriad. And that's why we can have conversations about do you need more discipline in schools and smaller class sizes and school choice and all those things, which are all, all very important. But right now, you've got, you, you've got a crisis of learning that was bad to begin with, but it has made much been made much much worse by what happened during COVID. And and I think you got to start talking about some dramatic sorts of changes because if you're not going to make those dramatic sorts sort of changes, again, the, the kids are just going to fall farther and and farther behind. I mean, I've told this story before. I when I was second semester in college, uh, my freshman year in college, I think I had like six A's and a D because for some reason I took advanced calculus and I, I just. I had I, I passed underlying calculus, but I really, I did it mostly by memorization and things like that. I just didn't have the fundamental knowledge. Then I got into, you know, this, these advanced courses for reasons that, again, pass, pass understanding. And I just, I, no matter how hard I worked, I just didn't get it. I didn't have the fundamentals that are down. Same thing is true with lower level math. Same thing is true with reading. I mean, if you've you know, you, you you can't be doing seventh grade work if you're reading at a third grade level. It, it's just that simple. So do we let the seventh graders continue to read at the third grade level, or do we say we've got to do some dramatic things to try to help them? Let's talk to Brian in Wauwatosa. Brian, you're on WTMJ. Hey, how are you, sir? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? Well, you know what I think, Jeff? I think that the way we do schools right now doesn't really make a lot of sense, just in the regard that we bring these uh, students in, and they take seven or eight classes in a day. You know, each of those classes is about 40 minutes. A lot of those teachers give homework, but then they're on their way out to the next class. Right. I've always thought that we should maybe take math and say, hey, for the next six weeks, you know, from when you get there until lunch, you're learning math all day, mm-hmm. five days a week for those couple hours. And then in the afternoon, you take something else. Reading or whatever, yeah. I remember when I was... Yeah, well, whatever it is. I remember as a young man, one of my first jobs was a locksmith. Anyone that's had a summer job will tell you that they learned a lot about that job just by doing it. Now, right. I am not a locksmith by any stretch, but because I did it for four and a half months, I learned a lot about it. Yeah. You know, I at least have a working understanding that I never would have gotten had I taken a locksmithing class in eighth grade. Right. Yeah, four or one. No, I, th- I think and that's an interesting thought, Brian. And again, I'm not... I'm open to, to these different concepts of, of the way we change that. But I, I think you need—I I do think you need more concentrated instruction. Jeff, our daughter didn't do very well during COVID, um, and she went into school being a 4.0 student, student body president. We ended up having to get her a tutor to try to help her get back on course because by the end of COVID, she was flunking out of four classes. Thankful we could do this. Well, and I hope your daughter should be thankful that you as parents were concerned enough to, to realize that. But that's, that, that's I mean, that, that's the other thing. You know, she, on her own time, you get the tutor and you try to bring him up. Look, a lot of people aren't going to do that. They're not going to have the wherewithal to do it or they're not going to have the parents that are plugged in enough to do that. So by going to like a year-round school situation— what you do is I think you make it, you know, easier to to do that and, and to catch up. Jeff, during the shutdown, I was appalled that our school was only virtual for an hour and 40 minutes, four days a week, and one day for 30 minutes. I contacted the principal to discuss this and was told that that is all the state is requiring. Other parents I spoke to were not happy at all. It is the system that is failing our kids. Yeah, I, again, I, 
I, I think you know you can put a lot of blame on what happened during COVID, but I agree completely. It, it's the system that is failing the kids. The question is, what do we do now, and how do we, you know, move on past it? Jeff, I live across the street from one of the year-round schools. They do have a handful of year-round schools at MPS. They go to school for eight weeks. They're off for six weeks, and then they have off in the summer. And they have a little bit of time off in the winter, but they're not off long enough to forget anything they've learned, and these kids seem to enjoy it. Well, I, I you know, again, yeah, when you talk about year-round schools, it's not like it's 52 weeks. That That's not it. There, there's It's more like a quarter type of system that's built in. All I'm saying is I think we, we need to look at this and we need to recognize that what we're doing now isn't working. We need to make some dramatic changes to get it to start working. And this idea of, okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to throw money at this, and that, that's going to solve the problem. No, that, that's, that's not going to solve the problem. It's not a money problem. It is a structure problem. How do you get more concentrated learning for, for the children, for the kids? How do you get these numbers up? And in particular, I mean, look, I, I, again, I don't care what your politics are. You look at this story, and you're talking about that this gap. Wisconsin reports the widest score gap between black and white students in the nation. So that's telling me that these schools in the urban areas are failing worse, at least as far as you measure this. And we can talk about why they're failing, but they're failing worse than anywhere else in the country because, you know, if the urban schools are primarily, you know, minority-attending schools— they're falling further behind their, their counterparts at the largely white suburban schools. We have to do something. We have to do something to take care of that. And, you know, um, you know, maybe part of it, one of our texters is talking about homeschooling, and maybe that's a, a factor as well. A lot of parents just aren't qualified to homeschool. Bottom line is this is a warning shot that what we're doing now isn't working, and unless we're willing to write off a generation of children, and I'm not willing to do that, we, we've got to make some major, major changes. Okay, when we come back in the next hour, roundabouts, candy bars, and a lot more stuff. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. You know, Mike Spaulding, I, I'm rethinking something that I have said for years and years and, and years. It has been my experience that the worst day to do what I do for a living is the day after a Packers loss because people are just in a bad mood. And, and so it doesn't matter. Jeff, I agree with you, but blah, blah, the Packers lost. You know, and, and so I, but this year is a little bit different than, than that. And because for, for most of the you know, two and a half decades that I've been working here, the, the Packers have been good. And there's been an expectation that they were going to win, and there was an expectation that they were going to go to the Super Bowl, et cetera, et cetera. This year seems a little bit different. Now, I think people are kind of disgusted and stuff like that, but I really don't—and they're they're angry, but I I don't get this sense. I think they're just more resigned. I think people are recognizing this is just a bad team. Yeah, almost despondent a little bit, just kind of like, well, I guess this is what the life is going to look like for the next— I don't know, however many games. At this point, I'm thinking probably the rest of the season, at least. I don't know. At, at least, no, because it's it certainly, I mean, it looks like it's a dumpster fire. So it's not like, oh, if they would have made that one play, they would have turned it around. Yeah. I think people are just looking at it saying this this team is a, well, the phrase that the Athletic used, it was a dumpster fire. They are, it is a dumpster fire. And it's not just, it's not just one 
problem. It's just so many problems that, you know, who 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 thinks? I mean, I, I think, okay, so they're three and four now. I mean, I don't know, I seven and ten? They might be lucky to go seven and ten. You don't think they'll get back above five hundred and finish above five hundred this year? Not with their schedule. No. It's tough. That graphic yesterday during the game, I was like, Whoa, you, you gotta play Dallas, goodness. you gotta play Philadelphia, you gotta play Buffalo. You yeah, I mean, you gotta play the Vikings again. No, I think it's I, I think you know, five hundred would be, but there's nothing that shows me if you if you lose to Washington, yeah. there's nothing that tells me that there's and there's no magic bullet. It's not like okay, we've got some you know great wide receiver who's all, who's injured who's going to come back and make all that. It's, it's not it. It is what it is. And Aaron Rodgers is looking all of thirty eight years old, and it's not all in Rodgers, but he doesn't look like he's the guy like six years ago where maybe he could pull an underperforming team around him and carry it on his shoulders. No, it's, I, I was at a bar watching this yesterday, and it was just kind of people were more, they were resigned. A lot of times, you know, I mean, I've, I've sat at this bar and I've watched them lose games, but it was, you know, people would be angry. This was like, oh, there, there they go. They can't cover anybody or they can't make the plays or whatever. It was just, ugh. I, yeah, I don't. I don't remember watching a, and feeling the way I felt yesterday watching a Packers game, even against the Jets. No matter how ugly it looked, it was still like, all right, well, maybe they're just a play away, and there are flashes. There was maybe one flash play yesterday that Aaron Jones catch for the touchdown, right, yeah. but in no point did I think down eleven with five minutes to go. Oh, they're going to come back and win. There was just no sense of hope. It was not fun. I was talking to uh, Brian D yesterday a little bit during the game, and I was like, you know what? I just. I'm not having fun whatsoever watching this. It's just a slog. Oh yeah, right. It, well, and it and then with all the officials and the penalties and stuff. I mean, the game took forever. I I sent out a tweet yesterday afternoon, and I, I had three thoughts. I said, first of all, the Packers are not a good team, and they deserve to lose. Second, I thought the officiating was terrible, yeah. and the crew should have been working high school JV games, maybe. So I was because you're right. It was it was it was a slog. It was like three and a half hours, and I'm you're going okay okay ready to go home. And then third. Um, I hate to make it personal, but I, Amari Rogers should have been cut at halftime and just given a plane ticket home. <laughs> you know, which is like here. I don't know where you come from, but here, back to Clemson or wherever. Here's your plane ticket. See ya. Just hold your breath, right? Every single every single uh, special teams play, you just hold your breath. Well, right, you, and not he, in a good way. He drops the punt. He drops the 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 touchdown. Would would have been a bomb. Yeah. I mean, at some point in time, it's just kind of like okay. Whatever the question is, he's not the answer. So it's it was kind of frustrating, but it is interesting because I just don't I don't get the sense that there's any sort of expectations. You'll find this amusing. Uh, uh, you know who I'm talking about. I, I know a guy who works for the Packers, and he's planning on retiring at the end of the year. And he bought a place in Florida. And so I was saying, okay, well, well, when when are you going to be down in Florida playing golf? You know, maybe we can hook up with something. And he said, well, you know, I, I I I'm retiring whenever the Packers season is over. He said, hopefully that won't be till February. I sent him a note yesterday. Said. Second week in January, I assume <laughs> yeah. that you're going to be open for golf because this team doesn't have the sign of going anywhere. No, it's it's brutal, and I, you know I don't blame it all on Aaron Rodgers, but no. but the the receivers are it's bad. It's bad. It's we, bad. We agree on on so many levels. Mm. It's just it's just bad. But but again, I'm I'm rethinking this because I don't get the hostile the sense of hostility, which really probably isn't good. Because at least if people are mad, they're invested in it. This year, it's kind of like, huh? They, these really are not good teams. It, well, they're not fascinating losses. They're not you know as bad as the officiating was yesterday. They're not like like you said. There's no one moment where you can point and go, if that just would have went our way, they win. It just was. Over and over again, like slant route, drop, 
uh, throw at someone's feet. Aaron Jones runs for seven yards punt. It just was ugly. Now, I do think that the it's a different game if when it's 14-3 to and the Packers recover that fumble and run it back for a touchdown, that doesn't get called back on that like little ticky-tack you know, hold, you know, illegal holding. touching or whatever right. it was, yeah, yeah, contact. Right. Yeah. Which, which again, that that's a that's a high school call. That that's a that's a high school JV call. Um, so if it's twenty-one to three, I think that changes it. But that said, you know, that that said, it was still just a debacle. And even if they would have won, because they got that turnover yesterday, and then the Aaron Jones catch touchdown, I still don't think we'd be feeling good about what we saw. You know, it would be I, we won somehow. Mike, the most stunning statistic to me was they did not convert a third down. Uh, and that doesn't they got a couple first downs based on penalties, mm-hmm. but I mean they did not convert a third down on their own without a penalty. That was the first time since 1999. You got to go back 23 years. Mike Sherman is that when we were to, doing uh, I don't know 23 years, I don't know 23 years um to to find when they didn't convert a third down, that that's just that doesn't happen to NFL teams. You don't convert third downs, much less backers. Anyways, so we're we're all wallowing in this, but I guess perhaps it's perhaps it's you know just expectations. All right, I want to completely and totally shift gears. So yesterday on Sundays, I, I have some friends of mine, and we play golf at Hawthorne Hills, which is a an Ozaki County public golf course. It's in Sockville. Um, the, the way I get there is you get off the freeway, you go west on 33 through Sockville, like you're going to West Bend, if you can picture that. You get to County Highway I, and then you go north for about four miles. That's where the golf course is. You, you haven't been able to take that route for the last three or four months because at the intersection of 33 and I, they have – that was one of the most dangerous intersections in the state – because what it was is you had stop signs that were crossing 33, and you had cars that were kind of coming down hills. And what would happen is the cars wouldn't see the cars that were trying to cross, and, and you'd have a, a, an alarming number of fatalities. And so what they decided to do is they were going to take out the stop signs, and they put in a roundabout. Now, the it's been closed since about the 4th of July, so it's been closed for months and months. It reopened Friday, I think. So yesterday— as I was going out to the golf course, was the first time that I was able to, you know, hit hit the roundabout. And I was wondering what this was going to be and whether it would work and whether it was worth, like, the four months of construction and stuff like that. And I have to tell you, in all honesty, it I thought it was tremendous because it, it slows you down. And if the idea is to prevent the, you know, crashes where you have somebody that's going, trying to cross the cross highway um, highway I, and somebody else is coming down 33, you know, going 65 or 70 miles an hour, you know, you're going to have the, these bad side impact collisions, which are going to, you know, result a lot of times in people dying. Well, this is, I mean, you, you just, I don't care which way you're going, you have to slow down as you're going into this roundabout. And it might be that you're going to have fender benders, but you're not going to have I think it's very unlikely that you're going to have the, these major collisions, which are going to cause people to lose their lives. So I, I was driving through this, and I, I've been kind of agnostic on the whole idea of roundabouts. But I will tell you, seeing this one, I thought, man, this is why you put in roundabouts. It's something that does make stuff a lot safer and really doesn't inconvenience people. The, the more I see these, 
the more sold I am on installing some of these roundabouts. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. Now, I think you can overdo roundabouts, and there's some areas where you have one after another after another, all in a really small space, which I think, to me, that might be a little bit overdoing it. But, you know, these ideas were, especially on some of these county highways, it's dangerous crossings. I'm just looking at what they did up on 33 and I in Ozaki County or Washington County. I think it's probably still Ozaki County as, as a classic example of why you do these things. So are you sold on roundabouts? 855-616-1620. We discuss. I'll be the roundabout. The words will make you out of 855-616-1620. Cute bumper music. Um, okay. So, I mean, here, here's the thing. I, I'm st- when they first started introducing roundabouts, I, I was a little bit skeptical. The, the more I get used to them, the more I see the value of them. At the same time, I mean, I guess my big complaint would be there are areas where you have one after another after another in a short space. But I was just looking today at the, they spent the last four months constructing the this roundabout on 33 and I in Ozaki County because they had all these fatal accidents that were there because people would try to cross Highway 33 and cars would be coming down the hill going 70 miles an hour and you'd have the, these massive collisions. Now you're not going to be able to do it. You, you might have fender benders, but you're not going to have the 70 miles an hour smashing into the car that's trying to get across the the road where you end up having a fatality. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Mike on the northwest side. Mike, good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon, Jeff. I agree with you. Uh, these roundabouts, you know, they're kind of a pain to get used to, but uh, they uh, we have a friend that lives in the villages in Florida. Right. And uh, they've uh, got a lot of roundabouts there, but uh, dramatically they've uh, reduced the, like, T-bone accidents yep. that cause fatalities and stuff like that. It's mostly just a fender bender at best. Yeah. And that's a real plus for that. But uh, the other drawback, and it's probably just an isolated case, I have a relative who lives by Holy Hill. Okay. And uh, they were trying to go east on 167 yep. the other day, yesterday. And there were so many cars going west to look at the leaves at Holy Hill. Yeah. It was car after car after car. They couldn't get into the roundabout unless they had the mercy of one guy letting them in. <laughs> yeah, you, you do have, yeah. And I, I know, matter of fact, I know exactly where, I think I know exactly that roundabout that, that you're talking about. You know, thanks for going. I mean, it, look, it, it's not a perfect sort of setup. And, I, and I'm not arguing that, but I. The, the more I see these, the more it starts to make sense to me. I do think you need to space them out a little bit. And, and I do think we're still lagging in educating people as to how you drive through the roundabouts. I mean, and, and look, and I'll be the first to admit, the first or second time I go through some of these roundabouts, sometimes I, I really got to concentrate on, you know, where you're going. I think as you travel through you know, different roundabouts, as you travel through them more frequently, you start to understand this. And But yes, to your point, Mike, and I think that's what the traffic safety engineers would say, you're, if, if there's going to be a collision, it's going to be at a lower speed. It's not going to be the T-bone type of thing at 70 miles an hour because you, you've got to slow down to get into those roundabouts. And so if you're going to hit somebody, more likely you're going to hit somebody's fender um, or something like that or the rear panel or whatever. So, yeah, you might cause some damage, but you're not going to have somebody that's that's dead. Let's talk to um, Tony in Richfield. Tony, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Tony. I just wanted to comment that uh, the one that I found that has been a act of brilliance <laughs> Okay. <laughs> uh, was the one on Highway Q, County Line Road, dividing okay. Washington, Washington County. Okay. And uh, 164, up by Lake 5. 
Okay. There used to be there used to be backups. I worked third shift, and there used to be backups in the morning going southbound towards you know towards Waukesha, and in the afternoon going northbound. Everyone going home, and now you just it, you pass right through there. What was it before? Was you it know, a, it, was it a four way stop? Is that what was I'm there? Sorry, I'm sorry. Yes, it was a yeah. four way stop. Okay, yes. got it. Yeah, I was trying to. I can yeah. picture well, you talking. That's what I mean. Yeah. That's where that's where the backups were. Yeah. County Line Road. You know, uh, well, County Line was not as busy as 164. Right. And that's what I saw. That that's where they're most useful. Is some you know where one road is busier than the other. Yeah. No, I I think you're, yeah, you. Yeah. You get a backup. Yeah. No. Th- yeah. Thanks for calling. No, I think I, I think you're you're. You're right, and and again, it just—I mean—the the big saving from them is first of all that once you get them installed, they're, they're cheaper than having like red lights and, and things like that that don't have to be maintained. I mean, once you get the once you get the thing built, it it's there. And I'm not saying roundabouts are perfect. And like I say, I would I, I would go to the DOT, and there are there are some around that I'd say, okay, why do we have these all one after another after another? Jeff, I live in Muskego. I love them. It keeps traffic moving. Only issue is I'm a semi-driver, and nobody yields to the big trucks, as the law states. Yeah, the, the law says, you know, a lot of the roundabouts, the, the two-lane ones, you know, you can have two cars in there. The law says the the, the semis, the trucks, they you're not supposed to be next to them in there because that's— that that is an issue, um, Jeff. Uh, County JJ Winnicani Avenue and City CB Pendleton Avenue roundabout was much needed, but was you know under construction since last fall. Um, yeah, that's I do. That's up in Nina. I do understand. I, I don't know why it takes them as long to construct some of these things as it does. But again, I'm not going to do that. Jeff, roundabout suck. They back up traffic, and most people don't know what the hell they are supposed to do in them now. I don't know about the backing up traffic. I will say that it's true. I think a lot of us still haven't figured out how to, you know, drive through the roundabouts. Um, Jeff, I went through Highway I and Highway 33 a thousand times, and I never saw an accident. The speed limit is 55, not 70. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I used to drive that stretch a lot, and people are coming down a hill. The speed limit might be 55, but they're going 75 or 80. You're coming down this hill. You've got people that are trying to cross this county road I, and yeah, I mean, well, the numbers speak for themselves. They had a number of fatalities that were there because people just weren't able to see. Um, Jeff, uh, the one at Moreland Road by 43 is disconcerting. Got to think about which one that is. Jeff, love the roundabouts. In the Green Bay area, we've got a ton of them. And at first I hated them, but now they keep traffic flowing and they do make people slow down. There are a few that, you know, still go through, people still go through like they're IndyCar race drivers. The only advice with roundabouts is if you're through with a semi, please let the semi go through alone. Right. That's the way. Jeff, the only way they get backed up is because people stop and it's not a stop sign. It's a yield sign. As you're approaching the roundabout, you start looking left already. You make a split second decision to enter it. There could be no cars coming and people are stopping. Right. That's so you got to learn how to drive in these things. But I I will tell you, I was going to be curious because it was an inconvenience to have that intersection closed through a good portion of the summer. I was curious as to how it was going to be. Got to see it yesterday. And I'm thinking, you know, this I criticized the DOT for a lot of stuff, but, you know, this was a great spot to have a roundabout, and there are going to be more and more of them coming. You'll find a lot more roundabouts on the East Coast. It's a relatively new thing for the Midwest, but I think this is the wave of the future. So the bottom line is, like them or not, I think they're going to be with us, so we all need to learn how to drive through them. 
All right. I confess, when I lived in Whitefish Bay, we were that Halloween house. Now, let me explain. My late wife loved Halloween, and I, I think it, it stemmed, she grew up and her family didn't have a lot of money, and, and she you know, grew up and her dad would drive her and her siblings to like these different neighborhoods that, that, to trick-or-treat and stuff, and she always, she always loved that. She thought it was so very cool. So where we lived in Whitefish Bay was, you know, there were lots of houses closely compacted, and so we, we always made a big deal about Halloween. On, on, whenever the trick-or-treat was, we, we were going to be there. One of us was going to be home, and, you know, people would come up to the doors. And you know, where we lived, it was um, actually, it was one of those areas where I think a, a lot of people kind of drove from other neighborhoods into our neighborhood. And that was fine. I, I've never... I've never begrudged that at all. I think that's just absolutely great. If you want to participate in Halloween, I, I think the more the merrier. But we were, we were that house. What house were we? We were the big candy bar house. We we were when when my wife was buying candy to give out on Halloween. We we weren't fooling with the the little stuff. We we weren't fooling with the bite sized things. No, we were we were buying the full size Kit Kat bars. I mean, we we were going all in on this. We were the big, the big candy bar house. Now, where I live now, there, there's not there's not kids in the neighborhood and stuff. And I think the the first year we were there, I went out and bought a bunch of candy. And we, other than like one of our friends who brought their grandkids over, that, that was it. So so nowadays, where where I live, people don't come, and it's not like it was before. So I'm not sure we'll even buy any candy this year because like I say, we, we just don't get trick-or-treaters. But but back in the day, where we lived, the neighborhood we lived, we got a lot of trick-or-treaters and we were the big candy bar house. And, you know, I can remember when I was a kid growing up and, you know, when I would, I, I lived um, in Glendale, my parents lived in this neighborhood that was right next door to where Nicolay High School was. And, you know, people were, were always very, very nice but there was always one or two houses that were the big candy bar house. You know, not the ones where you get the little tiny, you know, whatever, the handful of like malted milk balls or whatever. You got you got the Snickers bar. You got the real size Kit Kat bar. You you got the oh my god, it's a real I mean it's it's the big candy bar house. Now, I was thinking about this because there's a story in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. Halloween dilemma to be or not to be a big candy bar house. Everyone loves the neighbor with the regular size Twix and Reese's. Oh, yeah, that was it. We used to have, we'd have the Reese's peanut butter cups. Oh, that was good. We'd give those out. And, of course, there, there were always, this was when I was younger and I didn't really care about that stuff. There'd be stuff left over and you get to, like, tear into the Reese's stuff. But here's the story. Halloween is almost here and my highly demanding trick-or-treat crazed children have made a special request. They want to be a big candy bar house. What's a big candy bar house? Oh, like I need to explain it to you. You know exactly what a big candy bar house is. It's a house that gives out big candy bars on Halloween. Not fun size, Halloween size, or bite size candy bars, but the regular iPhone size chunks of sugar that you can buy at a truck stop or convenience store every day of the year. Everyone who has ever thrown on a costume or gone trick-or-treating has a story about a big candy bar house. It usually goes something like this. It was the end of the night. We'd knocked on every door in the neighborhood but one. And when they opened it, we couldn't believe our eyes. Actual size Kit Kats. That could have been our, our house back at the time. So anyhow, the, the author of the story goes on and says, you know, his kids are saying, Dad, Dad, this year, let's be the big candy bar house. And he's going, 
well, you know, I, I don't know about this. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not, I'm worried about the cost, you know, because it, there, it is a little bit expensive. Um, I'm worried about setting a precedent. If we're a big candy bar house this year, I assume we have to stay a big candy bar house forever. I'm, I'm concerned. Is this, is it too showy if you're the big candy bar house? Our number. 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. Think back. Do you remember when you were trick-or-treating or you were taking your kids trick-or-treating? But when you were a kid, do you remember that big candy bar house? You know, that place that, oh my gosh, they're giving out real Kit Kats. That, that's just tremendous. And is it showy? Is it ostentatious? Or... You know, if you can afford it, is it a good thing to be that big candy bar house on Halloween? 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. Let's take a walk down memory lane. Big candy bar houses. All right. Do you aspire to do that? Is it a good thing? Is it overkill? What do you think? You know, I work so hard. I really do it for hours, preparing shows and researching things and stuff like that. I I, I know what the talkable topic from today's show is going to be. Hey, the guy on the radio, that Wagner guy, he was talking about big candy bars, you know, in the houses. But it, it is true. I mean, you know, our, there's always a house in a neighborhood that's the big candy bar house at Halloween. Let's talk to Sandy in Stevens Point. Sandy, good afternoon. Hello, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Did you have a big candy bar house growing up? Well, it's funny because I grew up in a subdivision um, when I was a kid, and it was a subdivision with one way in and one way out. And, and behind the subdivision, in the subdivision, were apartment buildings, and my grandpa lived in those apartment buildings. So he was that guy that gave out the big candy bars. He had boxes of them that I think he got from the bars he went to. I don't know. <laughs> I think he bought them from the bars. <laughs> Whatever. So he, he was that guy. It was awesome, you know, and, to this day, I remember that, and, and as a little kid, I just remember my eyes just lighting up like, wow, you're such a cool grandpa. Right, he's got, <laughs> he's got the Snickers bars and stuff. Yeah, somebody just texted me and said that, that their, their uncle was like that, but that was it was the same thing. He owned a vending machine company or something like that, and he, he didn't want to go like buy the little bars, so he just went and you know, took the big bars you know, that would have been in like a vending machine thing. But isn't that cool? You get a full-size Kit Kat. Oh, it's, it's a whole Snickers bar. Oh, my gosh. No. I know, and you got me thinking. I think I'm going to be that house this year. Oh, okay. You get my my wheels turning here. All right. Well, that's the thanks for calling. You will. Well, that, that then that does raise the other issue of if if you're if you're the big candy bar lady one year, do you have to do it then moving forward, or will people be disappointed? So think about all that. But you know what the heck. Right. Thanks. Yeah. Well, thanks. if I go broke, I'd maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah then you okay. then, then you blame me. No, thanks. Then you, then you blame me. But but it is actually a couple people are saying that it's really it's kind of a nice gesture. If, in fact, you can afford it. Jane, Jane, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, how are you doing, Jeff? I'm good. Big candy bar house? Yes, I grew up in West Dallas, and the neighbor lady always gave away the big candy bars. Hershey's, back when they were big squares. Right. (laughs) But she always gave the um, big Hershey bars to the neighborhood kids, the kids she knew. Okay. And that was always fun. Oh, yeah, so you made sure you were going to go over to Mrs. Schmidlap's house or whatever because she had the really good stuff. 
Exactly. And she always knew the neighborhood kids, yeah. and it was perfect. And then word got around, but if the, she didn't know the kids, she didn't give them the big candy bars, the big Hershey bars. <laughs> And she always knew the kids she gave them to because we never got two from her. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much. She, she ended up keeping track about that. Jeff, what would something like that cost if you were to hand out big candy bars? Well, I don't know. I guess it depends on how many that you're handing out. And by the way, I mean, if you if 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 you can't afford it, well, there's no obligation to, to do that. But, I mean, it's, like I say, my, my late wife, she just loved Halloween, and she that was one of the things she liked to do. And so we were the big candy bar house. Jeff, I remember a house when I was a kid with a lady who made homemade caramel apples and handed them out. Yeah, that's uh, th- those days are probably in the past. If you get the homemade stuff now on Halloween, um, I don't know. Jeff, there's a house in Hingham, Wisconsin, that gives out string cheese and fresh curds. Huh. Jeff, um, well, that's it. Jeff, I grew up in Hales Corners, and I totally remember the big candy bar houses. Some had a long driveway, but it was worth it. One gave out a box of Cracker Jack. We absolutely loved it. Jeff, I always loved the big candy bar houses. Great memories forever. We also stock up on large candy bars each year for the kids. Love the smiles and the thank you. Never had a problem with tricks. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's... No question about that. Jeff, on the one hand, have three kids still at home and want to save money and reinforce healthy eating habits. On the other hand, candy is expensive. A lot of big packs have unpopular leftovers, and big candy would make the visitors much happier. Maybe it'd actually be the same price if we knew how many visitors were coming. Yeah, um, that's it. Um, Yeah, I mean, again, nobody's saying that you have to do it, but I'm just... What got me thinking about this is the story where he's talking about the big candy bar house, and I just remember as a kid that that was the that was the thing, and you always remember that. Jeff, we gave out lunch bag sized chips. No worries about peanut allergies. Yeah, that's um, that's the <clears throat> thing, Jeff. I say if you can and you want to, then you should do it. Jeff, it's not showy. It's a kind gesture that makes kids happy. Now, if you're handing out $20 bills or iPhones, that's a different story. Well, at least when I was growing up, we didn't have those houses that were handing out $20 bills. Jeff, I remember we had a couple houses that had big candy bars. It was the unexpected best. Our eyes and faces lit right up. All happiness. It was an awesome neighbor. Jeff, we did the big candy bar giveaway one year, but I would always make the kids tell me what their costume was. And one little five-year-old said when I asked, I don't know. So I gave him two candy bars. Yeah, that was our, our our rule also was you had to have a costume, you know, and it was, sometimes you'd have these teenagers that would kind of like show up and, you know, just kind of ring the doorbell. I was like, no, man, if if, I'm happy to give you the big candy bars, but... Um, you know, you know, you got to work for it a little bit of it. Um, Jeff, I can sort of one up that my parents ran a tavern in our hometown and obviously had snacks at the bars for Halloween. We would do these little grab bags with not one, but two regular size candy bars, mix of Snickers, Hershey's, Kit Kats, Nestle Crunch. Oh, that's pretty good. Jeff, um, we actually had a house in our neighborhood. See, people remember this stuff. You know, that's, that's, that's what intrigued me. You remember this stuff. It's, these are the things that I keep people thinking about. Yeah, I remember that. I remember the big candy bar house at our place. Jeff, we actually had a house in our neighborhood that was a candy bag house. He would give away bags of miniature candy bars where there were maybe 15 or 20 miniature candy bars in a bag, and he would give away the whole bag. He did it every year. Jeff, the, can, the big candy bar house, it was the Boone household. 
It's funny. He still remember who it was. We would flock there. They were the best. And his kids, we didn't think it was showing off. We thought it was great. Um, however, in my neighborhood now, we get about 200 kids, and it's hard to get full-size candy bars, so we tend to do ring pops, and the kids all love those. Yeah, again, I'm, I, I'm not encouraging it. I'm just saying I think it's, I think it's really kind of a cool thing. Jeff? Bigger is always better. Well, I don't know. Jeff, we give out full-size candy bars, usually Kit Kat, Butterfingers, and Chunkies. I, boy, I haven't had one of those in years and years. And also individually wrapped dill pickles. We started that 20 years ago, and many of the kids remember the dill pickles, and they choose those over the candy bars. Usually we have about 150 kids come through on Halloween. Huh. You know, the the dill pickles. Jeff, I remember a lady giving out dollar bills at trick-or-treaters. It was a lot of money for us back in the 60s. Um, That's it. Jeff, I think it's a bad idea. Too much obesity and diabetes. Quality, not quantity. Well, well, I guess my response to that would be, if, if you don't want to participate, you don't have to participate. And I understand that obesity is an issue, and I understand that diabetes is an issue. But the truth of the matter is you're, you're, not, going to, you're not going to suffer from diabetes because you, you got a Hershey bar from somebody on, on trick-or-treat night. So there, there are times, and I appreciate that these are issues that are valid. At some point in time, though, I think, especially if you're a kid, you get an asterisk. And for me, that would be trick-or-treat. Uh, let's talk to Mike. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. My daughter-in-law, she has a, a cotton candy machine that she got from, uh, I think, Sam's Club. <laughs> so she makes cotton candy for everybody. Plus, plus they get a, a choice of a candy bar. Plus, they get a choice of, a, of a, an apple or something like that. Also, <laughs> so so the deal is, the deal yeah. is you get the pure sugar cotton candy, and then we're going to give you an apple too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hey Jeff, when I heard that last answer, I thought maybe I should just hang up. Yeah, no, you that's know? no, no, no. I, oh, see, no. I think that no, that no, that, no. I'm glad you stayed on. Thanks for calling. It's you know, it's funny. Cotton candy. Uh, my mom worked for a dentist. Cotton candy. I just don't get it. I mean, it's just, it's just absolutely pure sugar. That's something. Now there, there are. I mean, when you're talking about some of these good like Reese's. Oh my God, the, like the, the Reese's peanut butter cups. I. You know, I don't do this, but I could, I could sit down and eat a dozen of those all at once. But I, the, the cotton candy, never got it. You know, walk through the state fair and they've got the cotton candy and stuff. Not, no appeal for me. Okay, uh, enough of the big candy bar house. But, you know, Halloween is coming up. Trick or treat, I think, for many people is going to be this weekend. You can decide. But all I'm saying this is if you, if you want to have, you know, some guy 20 years from now talking about big candy bar houses on the radio, and you want to come and have them say, I remember that was, I remember those people. This is your chance to do it. You still have time to be a big candy bar house if you, in fact, choose to do so. 